This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I love a segment where we talk about things that people can, that you that, that we can prevent them from doing. Yeah. Five mistakes. Pitfalls. Yeah, pitfalls, yeah. mistakes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and this is a, a segment that's about what not to do mm-hmm. when you're taking charge of your finances. So the bells have been going off. You've been hitting yourself in the head with the hammer going, okay, i got to do something. i got to do it now. This is what you don't do. And often is, these are the things that you think you should. Right, and some people right say, oh, yeah, bat. of course you should do that. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, go for it. We're saying, well, stop, think twice about it, uh, at least hear what we have to say about a lot of years of client experience. These are things that people often say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that because it complicates things later and doesn't generally solve the problem. Okay, what, let's, let's talk about a couple of the, the tactics that we consider mm-hmm. uh, that we possibly shouldn't. Yeah, so number one, that's the most heartbreaking thing that I ever see, and I see it less now than I did a few years ago, but still it happens, is when people are facing a debt problem and they've saved RRSPs their whole life, maybe they've got a whole big nest egg set up there in RRSPs, quite often they'll start to cash in those RRSPs to pay their debts. And you say one of the things that we need to do individually is, you know, have a savings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Save some money, put some money aside, but... I mean, it's important to do that into an RRSP for sure, mm-hmm. but that's not what you're talking about. No. So what I'm saying is, you know, not the saving money part. That's a great part, but it's saying, oh my God, I've got these credit card bills. I've got this line of credit. Something's happened. I'm not able to pay it off. And often the collection agent or even the bank's financial advisor will say, oh, well, you've got all this money sitting in RRSPs, don't you? Oh yeah, I do. Well, why don't you cash that in to pay us off? And uh, you know, then that'll make us go away. And they're right, it will make the debt go away, but my God, what the person's done there, it's a double whammy. So first off, what they're not aware of, and often what they're not told, is that they could never be forced to cash in those RRSPs. So even if they had to file for a bankruptcy, the only thing they would have to lose out of those RRSPs is just whatever they've contributed in the last 12 months. And most of the time, if you're in a debt situation, you stop contributing to your RRSPs. So the vast majority of cases, 100% dollar for dollar of RRSPs could be retained even if the person had to file for bankruptcy. But if they don't know that, there's no protection. If you cash in your RRSPs yourself and hand the money over to your creditors, you've just given them access to an asset that they should never have been entitled to. If you think about it like a company pension plan, most people would know you can't suddenly cash in your pension plan to deal with a short-term debt. And why would you want to? Obviously, you want that to live for the rest of your life. Well, RRSPs, you should think about them exactly the same way. Even though you have the option to cash them in, I've never seen a situation where it's the right answer to do so to pay debts. And where I said there's a double whammy, so, you know, the first part of it is you don't have the money there for retirement, and oftentimes it doesn't solve the debt problem anyway because you've still got some issues there. But the second part of that is the income tax hit. So a lot of people don't plan on this, that when they cash in the RRSPs, they're not going to get 100% of what they requested. The government or the the financial institution is going to hold back some portion for taxes, but it's often not enough. So at the end of that tax year, maybe the person's cashed in their RRSPs, they paid off their debt, they're feeling 
going pretty good. And then suddenly they get hit with a big tax bill from the government because they got to pay tax on the money they pulled in from those RRSPs. Yeah, really important to remember. Yeah. So if you're any of the listeners, if you're hearing anybody in your personal life that's saying, oh, I'm going to cash in RRSPs to pay this off, you know, not saying don't do it, but don't do it unless you understand fully all the situations, all the protections. And it'd be news to me if there's a good situation where you should be cashing in RRSPs. I just haven't seen it. Now, the next one, it's, it seems again like a natural thing to do. Not mm-hmm. a, and not, it's not about asking somebody to co-sign the loan. It's about being asked to co-sign the loan. Mm-hmm. If I'm able to help you in some way, absolutely, I'm going to do that. Whatever you need. And I'm just co-signing, right? Yeah. I mean, what harm? how much harm can that cause? But I know that you have a, a very strong position on this. Yeah. And, th- and this comes just from years of having people in my office and, you know, going down the list of debts and saying, yeah, I can help you with X, Y, Z, so on and so forth. I can help you with all these debts. But then they tell me, oh, well, you know, my mom, my dad, my brother, somebody um, co-signed on this debt. And what does that mean for the person who co-signed? Well, what it means is when I tell these other people they're not getting paid back, that's the end of the story. They've got no other pockets to dig into. But when I tell the person who you've co-signed the debt with your parents for, well, what they're going to do is go to your parents and say, okay, we want 100% of the debt back right away. The person has breached the terms of the agreement. So almost always the discussion that I have with individuals is, well, the person who co-signed, they never thought they'd have to pay off 100% of the debt. They thought at most it's 50-50. Well, no, it's 100% of the debt. It's joint and several liability. And the second part too is they didn't think they'd have to pay anything ever. They just did this, you know, as a matter of trying to help you out, to help you get approved. You intended on making all the payments, but you know what? Life can intervene. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about difficult emotional situations Mm -hmm. when you're letting somebody down that you have to deal with for the rest of your life where you've asked them to co-sign, if you ever have to deal with your other debts, they're going to be left paying off 100% of that debt. So in every experience that I've seen, the person, if they had not gotten that co-signer, it might have forced them to actually take steps earlier to deal with their financial situation, but they would have been better off having done that because it would have only involved them. It wouldn't have involved other family members or friends or people who put their name on the dotted line. Yeah, regardless of the action that they take, whether it's a bankruptcy or consumer proposal, it's not going to include them. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is just another great reason why uh, you want to make that appointment, go see somebody at Sands and Associates, yeah. any of the staff to say, okay, this is my situation, what should I do? Yeah, and even if you're thinking about getting a co-signed debt, you know, you can come in and ask us about that as well. We can tell you examples where, okay, be aware if this happens, so on and so forth. Eyes wide open, make whatever decision you want. But sometimes you can be really pushed into there. And sometimes it's at the 11th hour, you're ready to sign off on the financing. And the bank manager says, oh, you know what? We've just got one extra hurdle. We actually need to get a co-signer on this. And you haven't thought about it, but you don't want this to go sideways. So it's the last thing you do is to put the co-signer on. And it's the most important, impactful thing that you did the whole time. Yeah. Okay, let's go into a a couple of more um, things that people shouldn't do, but they're almost given an opportunity to, and it kind of makes sense. So at least I'm doing something. Yeah. That minimum payment thing. Oh, exactly. The minimum payment trap, the minimum payment hamster wheel, whatever you want to call it. Um, But you hit it right in the head there, Elaine. You're doing something. You're paying minimums each month. And you're being rewarded for it because your credit rating is probably great. You know, you go online, free credit score. Oh my God, it's good. I'm making my minimum payments every month. Never mind that you got twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars of debt, but your credit score looks great because you're not delinquent. And a credit card company is actually suggesting, right? Mm-hmm. You, if you make this, yeah. you know, we'll we'll just continue on. Oh yeah. So it's not like I'm making up the number that I'm paying. No. That ten dollars or fifteen dollars oh. or whatever it is. Yeah. No. Exactly. And it, it's that absurdly low that some of the major banks, you might be paying two hundred dollars on your minimum. 
but $10 of that is what's actually reducing the principal. The rest is interest, charges, things like that. Um, so the numbers get scary really quickly. You know, if it was 18% interest, which is pretty standard, even if it was a debt of $1,000, you can be looking at a 10-year calendar to pay that off just at the minimums. And you can imagine how many times you would have paid the debt over, probably four or five times over, you would pay that $1,000 over a 10-year period. It's just not right that they state that on there. I know they've taken measures to explain that, that yeah, if you pay this, it'll take you mm-hmm. this period of time to pay it off. I get that, and, and kudos to them for doing that. But they should actually just... I mean, it just, it's just not right. Yeah. Well, what'll be interesting, and let's all stay tuned, is what Quebec's doing. So we talked about that a few months ago there. I remember, yeah. Quebec is saying, well, the minimum payment has to be 5% of the statement balance. Right. So that's a lot more than 10 bucks. So 5%, that turns credit cards into a 20-month payment plan. I'm okay with that, a 20-month payment plan for credit cards. I'm not okay with a 20-year or a 200-year. Right. Um, so I think it'll be fascinating as that gets implemented in Quebec and see how things change or not. Do you remember the date that that was being implemented? I, or I, I, And then there's a period of time that we have to wait and see how it yeah, all Yeah, it was early up. August was when it came into effect here. Okay, so, yeah. so this time next year we'll be able to talk a little bit further about it and see what kind of impact it did have, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> they'll either be really happy to tell us or not share anything about it. Well, who knows, but I don't see it as a negative thing, but I can imagine some people are going to have a shock if they thought new credit cards will work the same as the old and the new ones are requiring one twentieth of the balance every month as opposed to one one thousandth or whatever it works oh, out to be. Oh, good point. Right? See, I yeah. hadn't thought about that. I was thinking it would be a universal, everybody falls under this category, but that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, there's going to be transitions. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, now, there's a lot of good, well-meaning people out there in the world that want to help you with your dad and help you figure things out. And uh, and then there's some people who are, you know, sort of ready to take advantage of you. Yeah. And I think, I think it's an important point about where you're getting your advice from and your information from. Yeah. So, it, you know, my, my doctor says, you know, his biggest rival is Dr. Google. And it's not, <laughs> not a good rival to have. You know, you, I you use st- Dr. Google, by the uh-huh. way. <laughs> you start with blurred vision and suddenly everyone's dying the next day type, type right. of thing. Uh, a lot of the same can happen with your debt. So you really got to be careful. You know, you can go down rabbit holes online, message boards, things, and you'll find some truth, but a whole lot of obfuscation there. But also, even if you're sitting across from a professional you really need to make sure it's the right professional to help you and they don't have a conflict of interest. If you're dealing with a credit counselor that's funded by the banks, which not-for-profit credit counselors are funded by the banks, their objectives are completely different than yours. Their objective is to get 100% of the debt back and they can't reduce the amounts that you owe. When you sit down with a trustee, my objective as an officer of the court is to explain the rules to you, make sure you stay within those rules, but I've got no beholdenness to anybody to try to get you to pay back more or less or whatever. I want to work out something that's fair and reasonable as an impartial, unbiased professional. So if you're dealing with a trustee, you've got that protection, that code of ethics, all that expertise. If you're dealing with a credit counselor or a bank employee uh, or even a collection agent, sometimes collection agents will play good cop, bad cop and really try to, to give you the impression they're helping you out, whereas usually they're giving you counseling that makes them way better off at your expense. You're not doing the right thing for you or for your overall situation. I think the, the one of, and the last one is I think sometimes the most important one is that we talk about all the physical things and the 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 formal things that one can do when you get yourself into debt and you can take action and you can do this and this is da 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 da, but the emotional toll mm-hmm. that it takes on folks is sometimes unbearable. And yeah. I know that I know that you see that when people come in your door mm-hmm. to try to figure out um, what their next step should be and. It must be extraordinary when you get to help them and they 
they realize how much stress they've actually put themselves under. Yeah, so I think that the mistake is just, you know, carrying everything themselves, not reaching out for help. And yeah, I see people coming into the first meeting, they don't know what they're walking into, they're hunched over, you can tell their heartbeats going through the roof type of thing. But then as soon as they can understand, okay, there's a professional here to help you, you can now start to unload some of these things that you've been carrying. The transformation is just remarkable. People can suddenly get better jobs, earn more money, have better personal relationships, because they didn't realize exactly how much being in debt is holding them back. It's something that's always there on your mind, you're not sleeping and you're not eating, you just feel hopeless about it. Um, I have nobody leaving my meetings with a hopeless sense. They've got an idea of what they can do to move forward. Sometimes it's a little bit of work, sometimes it's easier than others, but to at least have a plan and to have someone working with you, that can make all the difference in eliminating the debt stress. There also seems to be this thing that we, we should automatically know how to do this stuff. Mm. And we, we didn't get the, you know, unless you took unless you took economics or you studied it, you, yeah. don't, you don't get all the information. Well, and Elaine, I took economics and I took accounting and all that. I had no idea about this until I became a trustee. So the average person, I don't think it's a failing. They don't know this. They just don't. If you want to book your confidential free debt consultation, call Sands & Associates. Here's their number, 1-800-661-3030 or go to their website, chock full of good information. It's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment's all about bankruptcy, and we've talked about bankruptcies before, the concept, how they work, but it's still a very scary word for people. That's right. And I just can't... Uh, I just think it's a really important topic every time that we talk about it because mm-hmm. folk, there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about it and how it works and how it can impact you. Yeah, so and I'm sometimes glad we're, par- yeah. partial information, partial understanding, you know, well-meaning friends or family members who might have heard something from somebody that can really send people down a bad path. So, um, you know, today we're going to talk about some hesitations, some objections, some, um, you know, even some myths that people think happen if you file for bankruptcy and really clear the air and let people know it is an option. It's not something you go into lightly. You don't go bankrupt on the on the way to lunch, not thinking about it. Right. Um, but for someone who's in a tough situation, I have people tell me often it's one of the best things they ever did in their lives to help them move forward. So I think one of the the, the key things about the discussion in this segment, at least, or, or something to keep in mind, is that, and we've said this before, you're not alone when it comes to this stuff. Mm-hmm. So do you have numbers off the top of your head about oh, how how many people <laughs> declare bankruptcy in? And we're to, can we talk about in, in nationally and then sort of to narrow it down a bit? Yeah, yeah. So nationally, it ranges between 100 to 120,000 people in Canada every year, year in and year out, do either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And, you know, some province is more prevalent than others. In Quebec, the bankruptcy rate is very high. In Newfoundland, the bankruptcy rate is very high. In Ontario, proposal rate is much higher. So it's a little different from region to region. In the province of BC in 2018, so for the full year, 10,000 BC consumers filed a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. So in and around almost 1,000 people per month, every month, and that's starting to accelerate these last few months. And it's not, I mean, uh, not that I want to say that it's not good, but it, boy, oh boy, there's something going on. If those are the kinds of numbers that we have, mm-hmm. um, it's just, uh, oof, boy, it's, uh, it's not a great time. 
Yeah, and you know, trustees were always busy because you know, basically, life events happen at different points to everybody, whether it's divorce, job loss, or um, illness, things like that. But definitely, there is a tie to the economy. And trustees in two thousand seven to two thousand nine were very, very busy because that was the Great Recession. A lot of things were happening, and folks needed help. Um, Every trustee that I speak with, I was just at a conference a couple weeks ago with trustees across the country for the next five years. Trustees are imagining it'll be very, very busy, and it's been picking up the last six months across the country. I always think, too, about the cost of things, the cost of living, especially mm-hmm. in the lower mainland when, when I'm here. It's like crazy. I don't know how folks are doing it, especially young people are doing it. So yeah. uh, there's lots of reasons why it happens. Well, and it's cost of living and also a cost of doing business. So mm-hmm. many small business people that come in to see me, you know, whether it's a new employer payroll tax or, you know, just various levies that are passed along to them, um, and even an inability to even hire staff at a reasonable wage because the cost of living is so high. Yeah. So, yeah, problems of BC, it's not easy to, to be financially successful, I think, at any level, whether you're self-employed or not. So can you walk us through some of the basics of bankruptcy, start at the beginning, what it is, how it works, and mm-hmm. especially in BC? Yeah, so bankruptcy, it's a legal process regulated by the federal government, but you don't need to hire a lawyer or go to court to file. You can't do a bankruptcy on your own. You've got to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, and the trustee is going to guide you through every step of the process. So bankruptcy is going to allow an individual to have virtually all of their debts written off if they're no longer able to meet their financial obligations. So it could include credit cards, payday loans, um, overdrafts, student loans, income tax debt, just about any debt that you can incur um, can be discharged as part of a bankruptcy. See, and that's interesting because owing money to the federal government, like income tax, Mm -hmm. etc., doesn't always get sort of covered, but in a bankruptcy, it does. Yeah, people are so surprised when I tell them, yeah, tax debt is just like any other debt, and that's the difference of dealing with a trustee because I can use the law. I'm not just an unlicensed credit counselor, for example. Um, I can use the law to reduce and eliminate all debts that are out there. Now, is it very expensive to file for bankruptcy? Well, it depends, right? So the way bankruptcy works, is it's geared to your income. So if somebody is low income, which means for a single person, they're taking home just under $2,200-ish per month, um, they're in bankruptcy for a period of nine months. So it's not forever. It's not six or seven years. It's nine months. And typically what they pay, instead of making any debt payments, they pay the trustee $200 a month for those nine months. Okay. So bankruptcy can be as inexpensive. I don't know if that's the right word, but as bankruptcy can cost $1,800 as right. a minimum, um, but it is geared to your income. So I've got you know some doctors, dentists who, you know, big debt load, but they're also filing for bankruptcy. And that's based on a percentage of their income they have to pay each month. So if you've never been bankrupt before and you're not low income, you'll be paying a percentage percentage of your income for a year and nine months, so for 21 months in total. Okay, so what do you get to keep over that 21 months? I mean, what mm-hmm. do, or, or what do you lose as well, a result? Right, and that's the, another big myth is, you know, when I tell people, oh, I do bankruptcy work, I'm like, wow, people think that must be terrible. You must be going to people's houses, taking everything that they own in their first bone. I'm like, and they're firstborn. I'm like, no, we know the opposite is really true. So basically people keep all of their assets when they go through bankruptcy, except for some assets, which, you know, common sense wise, you would understand you'd have to give up. So people keep all of their household furniture if they file for bankruptcy. They keep all of their clothing and their medical aids. They keep their tools of the trade if they're worth less than $10,000 in total, which they usually are. They keep a vehicle if their equity in the vehicle is worth less than $5,000. They keep their RRSPs, which people, again, 
A lot of people now know don't cash in your RSPs to pay debt because they're protected. But a few years ago, almost on a weekly basis, I was seeing people cashing in their RSPs, giving assets they wouldn't have had to give um, to satisfy their debts. So for the vast majority of bankruptcies that we see, we don't have to seize any assets because all the folks have is basically exempt assets. Now, if someone's got, you know, I've never seen this, I've got the yacht or the airplane or things like that. Odds are, first off, they would have sold them long ago before they're at the trustee's door. But those type of assets, things beyond what you need to meet your basic needs, those you couldn't keep as part of a bankruptcy. Okay, so um, you've got a question here. What are the ways that bankruptcy affects the person who's filing? We Mm -hmm. sort of covered some of that already. Yeah, so two big ones. First off, and this makes sense, you get out of debt. So all the debts get forgiven as soon as you're discharged from bankruptcy, and that can be as soon as nine months from the day that you file. Right. Uh, Another big one, and this is life-changing, is you get relief. The creditors can't contact you anymore. They can't call you, harass you, take you to court, demand any payments. They can do nothing to you while you're under the protection of a trustee. Okay. So what are the ways, and this is is the interesting part, or not the other stuff you've said isn't interesting, (laughs) but that bankruptcy doesn't affect. It's sort of these are the myths. These are, I think I got about four or five of these you know, top fears, four of them here that, you know, people, they consistently say to me that they're really hesitant to take action because. So first off is that your spouse is not automatically deemed to be filing bankruptcy. So one member of a married couple could file a bankruptcy or do a proposal and literally have zero impact on the other person. It does not transfer from spouse to spouse. Uh, A second one here is you're not prohibited from changing jobs or employers. So I generally never have to reach out to an employer to tell them somebody's in bankruptcy. I'd only be doing that if they were already having their wages garnished and the employer already knows there's an issue and I'm helping with it. But you're free to, to change jobs anywhere you want. There's generally no prohibition for a job that you can or can't take. What about credit? Am, mm-hmm. I, am I sort of stuck there? A lot of people think if you're in bankruptcy, there's a law against you getting credit. Now, literally the day after you filed the bankruptcy, you could apply for credit, but obviously we advise against it and the law says you have to tell people you're in the state of bankruptcy. Right. But once you're discharged, you know, bankruptcy is going to be on your credit report for six years after you finish it. But most people, the day after they're discharged, they start rebuilding their credit and within two or three years, they've got better credit than when they started. Okay. And what about uh, wanting to travel or mm-hmm. travel for work? Am I am I stopped from doing that? Absolutely not. So you're free to move, free to travel. There's no impact on passports whatsoever. Uh, if you're going through a bankruptcy, there's certain things that you have to do, duties you have to perform, like you know, giving monthly budgets and things like that. Those could be done remotely. Um, the only time you really have to see the trustee is for those two counseling sessions, financial counseling. So typically you try to coordinate that you can be with the trustee for those in person, but there are provisions do them by telephone or even over Skype if someone's out of the country. So lots of good information there. And I and I want to stress uh, the website for Sands & Associates. It's sands-trustee.com. And I know, Blair, that a lot of these questions and good answers are also on the website, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's literally pages of good information, and it's all divided up into, into sections, so you don't have to read everything to find one small answer. Uh, but do check it out, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, one 800 Get that first consultation as well as to find an office near you. And there's 17 offices in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
So we talk about on this show a lot, either specifically about or using it as an example of something that you can do uh, when you go and see Blair uh, at Sands and Associates, and that's the consumer proposal. Mm-hmm. Let's break it down, sort of deconstruct it, so people know exactly what it is. If you're kind of going, what's a consumer proposal? Because it feels like it's a new word, but it's been around for a while. It's yeah. just not necessarily been called this. Is that right? Yeah, no, that, that's that's fair, Elaine. I often joke, you know, my life's work is to let people know about this option. Because I had no idea a consumer proposal even existed. I graduated from business school, worked in a professional services firm for a lot of years. It was only when a family member had debt trouble that I actually learned about this as a consumer proposal. And I find people day to day in my office, they still don't know this is an option. So I'm excited today to really get into the nitty gritty, talk about what a proposal is, give you some examples to start, what can it do, and then what are the actual steps going into some good details. So this idea of a proposal that we toss around, here's the actual nitty gritty detail on it. Okay, so what is it? What is is a consumer proposal. Right. So a consumer proposal, it's a legal debt consolidation. So it's only available through a licensed insolvency trustee. And what happens is you sit down with a trustee, you review your whole situation, and then we figure out what can you really afford to pay back on your debts. In very few cases, is it 100% of the debt or you probably wouldn't be in my office. Most of the times, it's we look at a situation and we say, you know what, if this person were to file for bankruptcy, it's likely they would have to pay back very little to nothing on their debts and nothing would be recovered. We say they can't afford to pay off their debts back in full, so we put together a proposal which is meant to be a win-win. The win to the person is they don't file for bankruptcy. The win to the people that they owe money to is the person's going to offer them back more money than they would have received if that person had filed for bankruptcy. So in many cases, you know, if someone owes uh, a certain amount of debt, we offer a proposal for about a third of the debt, maybe half of the debt, something like that, and it's payable in monthly payments over a period of time. So often the creditor then is going to be a little more more uh, uh, favorable of this as a solution than mm-hmm. if somebody's going to de- declare bankruptcy. Yeah, this is really the creditor's option because um, if someone declares bankruptcy, it's their right. The creditor doesn't have to say yes or no, they can't reject it, they've just got to accept and deal that the person's used Canadian law to protect them. When the person makes a consumer proposal, the creditor gets the option. Would you agree, creditor, to reduce your debt um, and allow this person to pay off a reduced amount with no interest? By the way, if you say no to this, you're probably going to end up with nothing because they might file for bankruptcy. 95 to 99% of the, of the time, they vote to accept the consumer proposal. Sure, it makes sense. So a couple examples that might help our listeners here. Yeah. So uh, if there was someone that owed $20,000, and this is a number I see all the time, credit cards, student loans, payday loans, things like that, a typical offer in a consumer proposal might be 30% of the total debt repaid. So that $20,000, the minimum payments on that might be, you know, seven dollars $800 typically. If you were to do a consumer proposal, the payment would be $165 a month, uh, and it be done in 36 months, so just over three years. What you'd be paying back is 30 cents on the dollar. What would get written off is 70 cents on the dollar, and you would not have to do a bankruptcy filing all the costs would be included. You've essentially made a deal to compromise your debts. That's a consumer proposal. And if I'm listening to this and go, yeah, but I can't afford $165 a month, Mm -hmm. that's something that's also taken into consideration by you. Yeah, I'm not allowed to file a consumer proposal unless I sit down with somebody and we go through their budget and we establish that there is the ability to to make this reduced payment that's going to actually solve the problem. If it's the case, the person's relying on credit every month because they've got a $500 hole in their budget, 
I'm not helping them if suddenly I turn off the credit tap and say, hey, you got to pay me $165 to solve the problem. They've got to do a bunch of work first to figure out how are they going to live with no access to credit because you've got to be able to be self-sufficient. And then we can decide what we're going to do with, with the consumer proposal. And, you've, and you'll help them figure out the right balance or the right amount that they, they'll have to pay. Yeah, you know, debts in a consumer proposal, the maximum is $250,000, which is huge, but I've definitely seen people up to close that amount. And that's not including your, mo- your mortgage. So the mortgage is okay. separate. You continue to pay on a mortgage, a car loan. Um, but if you had consumer debts up to 250000 that's when a consumer proposal could apply. What's the minimum? Uh, there's no minimum. Okay. So I've seen people as low as four or $5,000 and okay. it's been payday loan debt. So they know it might be 4000 now, but with these interest charges, next year it could be eight after that, 12. So they do a consumer proposal and on a small amount of debt, you generally have to pay back probably about half or more than that. But still you stop the interest and you, you get yourself basically back on track to get out of debt as opposed to being in a cycle of debt. Okay, now there's a couple of more rules that you've got here. It can't, it does, does, how long does it go on for the consumer proposal? Yes, yeah, so the maximum term on a consumer proposal, and I like this, the maximum term is 60 months or five years. Okay. So we're not talking the never-never plan. We're not talking 10, 20 years of debt payments, which if you look at your minimum payments, that's usually the plan that you're on. Maximum term is five years for a proposal. And what I really like too is that's the absolute max because you can pay it off quicker. So if you do a proposal, let's say it's the 165 over 36 months, say things are going great and you decide you can double up on payments, you'll be finished that proposal in a year and a half. Okay. No interest, no additional charges anyway, but as soon as you pay off the reduced balance, you're finished a proposal and you get up to five years to do so. So it's a little more flexible. Yeah. Really flexible. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do I get started? So the way a consumer proposal works, so at Sands & Associates, we typically employ a three-meeting approach. And this is the same for a bankruptcy and a proposal because when someone walks in the door, we don't really know what we're, what we're facing. Right? And that's the joy of my job is I'm going to meet with a bunch of really nice people every day who are going to tell me um, all their secrets, so to speak, and we're going to come to a good answer. So sometimes the answer is a proposal. Sometimes the answer is a bankruptcy. Sometimes the answer is just some informal counseling, making them aware of different tools and resources that are available. But everything starts with a free confidential consultation. So we mentioned a lot on this show, you know, you call the 1-800 number, um, you'll meet with one of our representatives at one of our 16 offices, very qualified people. And we'll sit down by saying, you know, what, what brings you in today? You know, what, what's been going on? What's the situation? And usually it's, well, I've got a ton of debt and the phone's ringing off the hook and I'm worried about all these things happening. And we'll just start a very gentle, um, compassionate dialogue about, well, here's the options, here's what you're facing, and then we'll we'll start a plan from there. And it's got to be different for every person that comes in your door, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the things will be similar, but for the most, like my situation could be completely different than the other, but even the amount is the same. Yeah, yeah, the the numbers change marginally, but the people's situations change completely from person to person, you know, um, anywhere from, you know, long-term medical issues, for example, to someone who a year ago was on the top of the world at a very successful business and now suddenly things have changed the coins flipped and they've got some big issues so um, you know I see folks of all walks of life and various different scenarios uh, but almost always uh, to a fault people learn things when they come in for that first initial consultation no matter how financially sophisticated they are most people have no idea about insolvency about the options that are available to them so the first meeting we book it for an hour it's typically about you know 40 minutes to, to an hour in length answer all the questions and then if you sit down with anyone at my 
offices, you'll leave knowing exactly what your options are. If you chose to file a bankruptcy, here's what that's going to look like. If you choose to do a consumer proposal, um, here's how we think that structure is going to unfold. So okay. the first meeting is huge. And I never have someone say they regret coming to that meeting. I have people say they regret waiting so long. People right. really, um, you know, they sit on the fence. They're worried about being judged. They're worried they can fix the situation themselves. And even if you can fix it yourself, you're still going to be armed with better knowledge by coming in for that first meeting. Fair enough. So what happens in the second meeting with you? Let's say I've decided to go ahead with a mm-hmm. consumer proposal. What happens then? Yeah. So at the first meeting, typically at the end of it, I pass over an application form, my business card, all the basically numbers that we've written up. And I say, okay, backbone of our second meeting is that you bring back an application form and you just give me some proof of what you've told me today. So we talked about all the debts that you've had. Okay, bring me in the most recent uh, statements for those. We talked that you've got a car and there's a loan against it. Okay, bring me the vehicle registration and the loan statement. We talked that you work this job, bring me in the pay stub and your taxes for the last year. So it's all pretty basic stuff. You know, I need to know your debts. I need to know your assets and your monthly income. So you bring me in some documentation to support all of that. And then during the rest of the second meeting, we just answer your questions. So if it's a consumer proposal, we talk about, well, part of the proposal is going to be the creditor acceptance period. So people are going to have to vote to accept and we go through that. And then we also talk about counseling because a really important part of both bankruptcies and consumer proposals is that you come for two financial counseling sessions. So the second meeting, again, we book about an hour, go through all of the information. Um, and by the way, and you haven't asked this, but no one's paid anything at this point. So the initial consultation is always free. All the subsequent meetings are free. The only time someone pays a fee is when we actually start to move forward and solve the problem. And you figured out what the monthly payment's exactly. going to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the third meeting is... The happy signing meeting. So that's the meeting when I find people walk out and I've had it many, many times. People say, you know what? I feel just so much lighter. I feel like I'm walking on air because what they've done during the third meeting is we sit down, we go through all the legal documents. We review everything in detail. You swear some oaths. This is an accurate and true representation of everything. Um, And then you walk out of the office knowing that you're fully protected. Your creditors can't do anything to you. Knowing that your proposal has just been filed and now for the next 45 days, all your creditors can do is decide, do they want to accept a proposal? that's going to give them a good repayment or do they want to reject that and then you would have an option of either filing a bankruptcy or going back to where you were before. 95% of the time they accept the proposal. 99% of the time if we negotiate, we reach a deal. So not quite 100%, but very, very close. But you're looking after all that stuff at that point, All right? that's behind the scenes, yep. So yeah. when that person walks out of the office after the third meeting, uh, we kind of jokingly say, but no news is good news. So we'll only call you if there's a negative vote, if there's a counter offer, anything like that. Otherwise, we're just waiting for 45 days to be over, and that's when the proposal is approved. Excellent. So what happens after they've let's go ahead, ferry, uh, you know, that they've gone ahead and approved it? Mm-hmm. What the creditors have accepted the proposal? Then what? Well, then life becomes pretty simple mm-hmm. because when you came in to see us, probably you were doling out, you know, payments, you know, and a small proposal, you know, maybe three creditors and other larger proposals, maybe 15, 20 different people you're trying to keep happy every month. In the proposal, you make a single payment, you make it to the trustee each month. We do auto withdrawal from bank accounts, so it's just seamless. We try to synchronize with your pay dates. So one payment per month comes out, and generally it's a payment that's way less than what you were paying before. Um, other than that, you come for the two financial counseling sessions that we talked about. You sit down with us, we talk about credit rebuilding, household budgeting, life after the proposal is complete. Um, and then you just continue on making the payments. So 
usually as part of terms of the proposal. You've got to keep up to date in your tax filings, uh, but that's about it. There's very little compliance otherwise. It's just make the payments, come for the counseling, and then we deal with all the rest. Are there any debts that can't be included in that consumer proposal? That's a good question, Elaine. There are a few. There's a, a lot of small debts, and you know they're typically the ones that you might think are you know maybe shouldn't be included in a proposal. So things like court-imposed fines. So if you go to court and the judge says, you know what, you must pay this fine, um, you can't suddenly do a proposal and say, hey, how about twenty cents on the dollar back? <laughs> no, the court's no. made that order, so um, unfortunately, it's got to be dealt with. Okay. Um, things that you know just logically you shouldn't be able to walk away from things like money owing. For things stolen or property obtained through false pretenses oh, sure. or fraudulent misrepresentation. All that stuff. So I think people sometimes have an idea that, you know, it's the scoff laws that, you know, um, try to renegotiate their debt. Well, the scoff laws run away from their debt. The people that do consumer proposals, um, typically they're dealing with debt that's honestly incurred and they, fa- they face it head on. Fair enough. Uh, child and spousal support payments. So if you've got an obligation for maintenance to your family, you'd never want to compromise that anyway. And in a proposal, you can't compromise it. So if there's an FMEP award, that's got to get paid. But you'll work with me if. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, if oh, I've got course. to pay that amount of money, yeah. you're gonna that's gonna be part of the discussion about what I can afford to pay each month. Oh, of course. Sometimes I've got individuals, you know, the gross income might be six thousand dollars a month, but thirty five hundred is going for child and spousal support. Well now they're an individual close to the poverty line and the proposal that I do has got to be something that can that they can afford and their net amount that's left after after um, their their support payments. Right. So don't let that stop you. Mm-hmm. If any of this sounds like you that 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 fits you or someone you know, go see Blair and his staff. Sands and Associates, they've got 16 offices in British Columbia. Uh, Go to their website, check it out. It's terrific. And give them a call, 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, this is one of my favorite segments that we do, the monthly client roundup. Sort of the stuff that you're seeing that's Mm -hmm. coming across your desk, other than the clients that you're seeing, at least for this first part. What's the, is there a change? What's Canada Revenue doing? Are they looking at people differently, or what do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, Elaine. You know, first off, we're busy these days. It's the busiest I've ever seen, and I've been at this firm almost 11 years now. Um, Summer is usually pretty quiet, but day in, day out, we've got people just struggling to get in for meetings with us. It's that busy. So a lot of people are struggling. I feel like there's been a bit of a turn and we're kind of the leading indicator of, you know, where I think a lot of folks are going to have some challenges. So I'm very- just so great. I'm so glad that people are seeking help though, mm-hmm. whether they end up using you yeah. guys or just figure out their own stuff. Oh yeah. Right? No, if someone can figure out with a meeting with us that they're able to restructure their budget, you know, figure things out and they don't need to form for, to file formally, that's success for us as well. So yeah. we're happy with that. But yeah, it's busy days these days, which we're happy to see. Okay. So in terms of what I'm seeing these days, one thing really surprised me in the last month, and that has to do with our favorite pals over at Canada Revenue Agency. Mm-hmm. And the way I'm summarizing this is it seems like they've decided that the small fish are easier to catch than the big fish. And what I mean by that is I see people quite often who for, it could be a lot of different reasons, but they might owe $50,000, $100,000 or more than that to Canada Revenue Agency. And CRA seems to be willing to work with them, you know, put together payment plans. You know, they're, they're kind of slow to seize assets as long as the person is in touch with them. But what 
I've seen in the last month has been two separate examples where Canada Revenue Agency has essentially thrown their hardest methods of collections at folks who owed less than seven, sometimes $8,000 of debt, and were just kind of struggling to get by on a monthly basis. So it really surprised me, and it seems to me there's a bit of a policy change on CRA, where they've now decided, let's go after the really small debt taxpayers and let's hit them really hard hmm. with what's called a requirement to pay. That's what I'm going to explain to you here. Okay, do. So the document I've got in front of me, this was issued, you know, on June 11th of 2019, and it's sent to a person's employer. And big letters up top says requirement to pay. And it says the following taxpayer in this case owed around $7,000. We're not talking $70,000, we're talking $7,000. And it says this requirement to pay from the Minister of National Revenue requires you to send us any money you would otherwise pay to the taxpayer. So again, this is to the boss saying the money you would pay to the employer, but do, to the employee, but do not send more than the total amount at the rate of 30% of each payment for wages or salaries. So the day this was received by that person's employer, suddenly he started working for 70% of his wages. 30% wow. got automatically sent off to CRA. And did this employee know that this was coming? No. This wow. hit him like a bolt out of the blue. Wow. Now, maybe he should have known it was coming. I don't know. You know, maybe he should have known, okay, I owe a little bit of money, so on and so forth. But if he had called me and explained, hey, I owe about 7000 I would have said, okay, usually he's not going to be quick to garnish you on that. Get the returns filed. I'll see you next week. When he came into my office with this, I'm like, okay, well, let's get you filed in the next two days so that we can stop this garnishy from happening. Yeah. Um, because what it's saying, you know, essentially the employer has no, no option here. There's liability here that the government says to the employer, if you do not not pay the money that's required according to the terms of this requirement, you will become liable for the payment of this money. So it's, if the employer chooses, hey, I want to be a good guy and pay your wages, well, they're going to pay out of their own pocket to keep CRA whole on that 30%. Wow. Regardless of the size of the employer, yeah. do you think? No, regardless of the size. I've seen it for small. This is a very sizable employer. Okay. Um, and you can imagine, too, what people are so embarrassed when they come in to see me is, oh, is my employer going to know? Are you going to have to call my boss? And the answer is no, unless something like this has already happened. Right. So if this has happened, I'm the person that can stop it. So a licensed insolvency trustee, if we file a proposal, if we file a personal bankruptcy, this requirement to pay has to stop immediately, but that's the only way to stop it. And your point in bringing this up is that this is happening faster. I've seen it two times in the last month on debts that one was 7000 one was 5000 Wow. So very surprised because typically this was for the big fish, you know, the 100000 or more, the people making a lot of money. Sure. Um, both of these, these points, these clients were earning between two and $3,000, and this made them unable to live as soon as 30% of their wages were taken. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you want to talk about a couple of clients that you've, that you've had? Yeah, let's turn the page and, and talk about some success stories yes. here. So a couple that I'm really really thrilled about these days. Um, so one was a young gentleman who came in to see me uh, back in May here, and he had accumulated about $24,000 of consumer debt across a few different credit cards. Um, he was working um, in a hospitality industry, and he wanted to build a career there as well. But mm -hmm. as of now, you know, his income was about $2,000 a month. Right. So you can imagine about $24,000 of debt, $2,000 a month of income. He was living at home, which allowed him, you know, to keep up on minimum payments, but eventually he wanted to, you know, move out. And if he was going to afford sure. rent, there's no way he'd be able to actually clear this debt as well. Exactly. So we thought about doing a consumer proposal and we figured out, okay, you know, if he were to pay back about a third of the debt, you know, around $8,000 or so on a consumer proposal, his creditors would probably accept it. Um, he could move on and make a reduced payment of around $140 per month. Mm -hmm. So we thought that would be great. Now, 
he went home and he discussed with his family and it turned out there were some family resources there and they came back and said, you know, we were thinking of helping him to pay off this debt, but we think that's probably not the best idea if he could do this proposal. What if we were to do a lump sum proposal, which means the family would help to give some funding and then we could offer a lower amount than a proposal that would be monthly payments over time. It's just going to be one payment, which means the creditors would typically be more likely to accept it. So we decided to try that and it was just last week I received all the successful votes back, Hmm. unanimous approval from his creditors. Um, He's offering back in the proposal $6,550 on $24,000 of debt, so just under a quarter of the debt, and the creditors took that and ran. They were very happy to get that recovery. He does a couple counseling sessions, puts all this behind him, and then he can build his career without having to have all this debt hanging around. Now, his family might say, okay, this lump sum, we eventually want to be paid back over time. I don't know about that. That's between them. Um, But I thought, you know, if if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, someone in our family is having a debt problem, the way to help them is to help them with a lump sum proposal, not to help them pay off all the debt in full. Because by going through this example, the person's going to come for some counseling with me. We've looked at their budget. We've set some financial goals. Um, This was a great thing to help head off this from getting any worse and maybe requiring a bankruptcy at some point. Exactly. And the counseling and all that stuff that this young person's getting is going to be really important. Oh, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. To never get success. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And one more client? Yeah. So a second client, and this is another successful proposal I've just found out in the last week or so. Um, So this person came in to me and they had a complicated situation, but not that severe of a situation. What Mm. I mean by that, it was complicated because there were 12 creditors, 10 of them were payday loans, and they were all, you know, Mm. different interest, different fees, different payment dates. So, you know, every month this person was making reasonable money, you know, almost $4,000 a month after tax take-home pay, but they had nothing left because all their money was going every which way and all these minimum payments and they weren't getting out of debt. So the total amount of the debts was about $28,565. And this person, again, was employed, was working a good job, but just wasn't getting ahead. Uh, We were able to ask to offer a consumer proposal. And, you know, previously this person, if she added up all her minimum payments, you know, it was over $1,000 easy per month and she was treading water. We did a consumer proposal for $165 per month. So her debts were just under $29,000, and the proposal were offering them back $9,900, which is $165 a month over 60 months. And what I anticipate is she's going to pay that off way quicker than 60 months because she's going to be able to adjust her budget and and kind of figure things out. But she was just over the moon completely when I said, you know, all these minimum payments, you don't have to do them anymore. And the proposal payment, she thought it'd be $700, $800. When I told her $165, she almost jumped out of the chair. Oh, I bet. And now one thing that really struck me as well is on this lady here, very sophisticated again, successful person, but she didn't know her rights. And when she signed onto some of these payday loans, this was the first time I had seen, but they actually had her sign a consent to assign her wages. So it said, if I miss payments, I agree that you're able to contact my employer and take 30% of my wages. She wow. showed me that. I'm like, this would need to be stamped through a court, approved in a court, so on and so forth. She said, well, no, they just told me I had to sign it. So one of the first things that I wrote was a letter to them saying, you know, I don't believe this has any force in effect. This is not a legal garnishee, but I wanted to get her filed as quick as we could. So then illegally I could make sure her wages didn't get taken. But I think it was the payday loan company knowing this has no force in effect, but they don't know that. So I want the person to think if they don't pay, I will go and take their wages. So it's very manipulative, very covert. That's what I would say. Oof, yeah, Which but we know payday loan companies aren't. Worst of the worst in my view. <laughs> Thank you for saying it. So I didn't have- 
have to. Fair enough. So uh, anything else you want to add? I just want to say, you know, if any of this information is resonating with any of our listeners, because we know that this happens on a regular basis. Folks just get into that cycle and and needing some help. Go to the website uh, to ask to see some great questions and answers at sands-trustee.com and then give them a call. It's 1-800-661-3030 for that first consultation. It's And to find an office near you, and there's 17 offices now in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.